This is your fortnightly instalment where I interview a trailblazing physiotherapist. My name is Doug Carey and welcome to Physio Plus 10. Today's guest has experience in abundance, trained in several professions and has brought it all together over decades of experience. We learn about the usefulness of nutrition and the roles that genetics and functional medicine can have in association with physiotherapy. Today's show, it's a great pleasure to welcome Verona Chadwick. Look, Verona, I guess just to get started, most importantly, why did you study physio? Interestingly, I actually started uni um, doing method laboratory technology. And I think like everybody else, when you're young, you just kind of get in and do a course, maybe not quite knowing where it's going to lead, what are you going to be doing? And you know, it was starting to get pretty heavy on the chemistry and um, and the life of just working in a laboratory, I'm thinking, no, I want to do something where I'm hands-on with people because I want to be social, I want to be able to chat to people, I want to help people. So somebody just sort of mentioned physio and I thought, okay, I don't know much about this. So I went and had a chat with Pat Koch, who was the um, the Dean or the principal of the School of Physiotherapy in Victoria at the time, and uh, I had a pretty good conversation with her. So, so what I did was I went back to, um, I actually worked for a year as a physio aide, so that I could get my hands on, get a feel for the profession, and um, also improve my year twelve score, so I could get into physiotherapy. So I went sort of a bit back to front, but got into physio that way. So you studied chemistry, laboratory technician work for a couple of years at university? Well, for probably I did the year. Yeah, which in the end I've used a lot of that chemistry more recently, to be honest, but we'll get to that with the biochemistry and stuff. It was pretty heavy at the time and I'm thinking, oh, gosh, do I really want to do this? But you raise a good point there because, okay, you sort of at the time you thought I just maybe waste a year of what I was wanting to do, but... As you say, when you come back at some point later in your life, and I find this a fair bit, even though we didn't know we'd need the information that we learnt in something we thought might not be relevant, it, it does come back to help us in, at different times. And I think anything that you learn and um, get involved in, at some point in time, you're going to make benefit out of that experience. I think even what you're saying there is with your year of chemistry, later in your life, it's actually proved quite helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I went back and um, repeated year 12 chemistry, for instance, and got an A. So, so I did get <laughs> a pretty good grounding. Yeah, well, is that, that one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was that was pretty amazing <laughs> to, to get top marks. So, apart from Pat, was there, was there anybody else that got you, like, how did you hear about physio? Did you have a sprained ankle when you met a physio? Was there something that moved you in that direction? Um. Well, not particularly. So, I mean, I, I I didn't have a massive wow moment and think, oh, yeah, that's the that's the profession I want to go for. And I wasn't sort of for years and years and years thinking, oh, yeah, I want to be a physiotherapist. It was just something that kind of happened. <laughs> so okay. nothing really. So you got into physio and what university was that at? Um, that was, uh, well, it was Lincoln Institute of Health Sciences in those days, was affiliated with Melbourne University. Uh, and we did all of our anatomy subjects and um, that, you know, dissection and all of that sort of thing at Melbourne Uni. 
So we sort of work between the two. Yeah. And was there a particular aspect of the content whilst you were studying that you felt particularly drawn to? Um, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I always leaned towards musculoskeletal, but then I also really, really enjoyed neuro. I, I love doing all the stuff with stroke patients and, and I was kind of torn between which way do I go with, you know, post-grad doing more musculoskeletal or more going into the neuro rehab side. So I was asking, did you come to a decision at that stage or you just yeah. tried um, a few things? Well, I did, but probably the one thing that made a difference to me post-grad was I took, well, I took six years to finish my physiotherapy course because I had a baby in the middle. So one of the things that made right. a huge difference to me was the fact that private practice and musculoskeletal approach was very flexible. Your hours were very flexible yes. and it just worked really well. Um, so that's that's where my emphasis kind of went. So you kind of made almost a practical decision there because of your family circumstances as to what was going to work professionally for you. Yeah, I did. But, I mean, I loved both equally. Um, but I, I was also very, very driven. So when I, when I first graduated, um, I just had a hunger for not wanting to know more and – I think that would be one of the things that I would say to the, the younger people coming out now is don't think that physiotherapy course is, is all that you need to learn. Um, don't put pressure on yourself, but getting out there and, and being hungry to learn more and, and going and doing lots and lots of courses that give you confidence, it, it gets you able to accelerate in what you're doing with your clients and in your profession um, and, and that really, I think, was a big thing in, in sort of driving me and, and initiating that thirst for, for more information, for more knowledge. So once you know a little bit, you want to know more. <laughs> so so that, that was a real yeah. part of it for me. So can you remember that amazing moment where you got your first paycheck? Um, <clears throat> I think the amazing thing for me I, I, is not so much not so much the fact that I first got paid to be a physiotherapist, but just the the fact that I was a physiotherapist working in a hospital situation, and I had that um, real moment of achievement, I guess, at that point when you know I'd finished my studies and um, yeah, I'm out there in a responsible position, and you know, I, you know, your self esteem is great and. Yeah, that's that's really was the biggest thing for me when I first started working. Okay, so you you your undergraduate was six years. You also had a young daughter or son. Son, yeah, my son was my first one. Yeah, yeah. And how did how did you go managing that sort of study, the clinical placements, and also being a young mum? <laughs> I, I think I was very motivated. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, what? it's it's just about it's just about um, management skills, I suppose. Um, yeah, well, I was lucky in that, I mean, I, I was six months pregnant at the end of second year and then I took a year off but did my electives for third year. Then I did third year. So I kind of split my load over a couple of years and then I went into full-time fourth year. So I, I split it. Mostly way. clinical practice. Yeah, yeah. So, and I had a pretty good husband at the time. So, um 
he was fairly supportive. And then I did it all over yeah. again with my post-grad manip therapy. You know, I did that <laughs> six years after I... <laughs> After I finished my undergraduate, I went in and did the two did two years postgrad manips, and uh, and and that was after having a second child. So I started doing my postgrad manips when my second child was fifteen months old. So I had two kids doing two years of postgrad manips and research and all that. So yeah, that was pretty full on, pretty full on. Yeah, life's got easy since then, has it? Uh, well, I don't know that I've ever done it easy because I've done so much study. And extra stuff since then, but um, I've yeah I've I've just enjoyed learning, enjoyed the challenge, and uh, I I would have to say the two years post grad manip therapy was one of the toughest things I ever did, only because I was juggling family and um, two kids, two very young kids. So, um, yeah, yeah that, that was pretty challenging, but it's also very rewarding. It, it's a pretty full-on year, isn't it? Like, I, I, I did it over two years, so I split it. So, but, um, but yeah, it was still very full-on. You still had to do all your research and, um, you know, I had my kids, but I also worked part-time in private practice at the same time as well through that time. So. Oh. Yeah. Your your first step then was to go in to do that Musk um, post grad, and that, that yeah. helps you a fair bit as far as that whole process of assessment and clinical reasoning and developing a lot more skills of palpation, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely! I would recommend it to anyone. I just again the clinical reasoning skills, just the ability to be analytical, to be able to become really, really good at your pinpointing your questioning. With your clients, I think that even now with all of the more detailed stuff that I do with functional medicine, um, nutritional medicine, just having that ability to be able to really hone in on what's important. Um, I, I think that I got that from doing the, the um, NIP therapy studies because they were just really intense. Um, so, yeah, that, that was really good value. Yeah doing that it, it, it seems to provide a great framework doesn't it, as far as it doesn't matter what you overlay but we'll talk about your nutrition or your functional medicine but it gives you that amazing baseline where you can sort of put your thoughts into a sequence you can start to clarify individual things and then you can sort of develop you know like a hit list of what's important to to ascertain information wise and quite quickly too with your client can't you Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it allows you, like like you said, to hone in on what the major issues are and uh, prioritise. And so you're obviously able to assess and treat someone a lot more efficiently, I think, than than when you are and you know just come out of your undergraduate year. It really sort of puts things in place. Um, and I'd encourage young people if they can't commit to something like that, at least do a number of courses where you're doing a little bit of clinical reasoning and, you know, the more you do, the more confident you get and you're more likely to stay in a profession if you're happy and you're confident in what you're doing. And I think that's huge, absolutely huge. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So you did your MNIPS and then you obviously this, this interest in nutrition came from somewhere. What was the spark for that for you? Well, I did not. Manips, and then sort of going back a little bit, I was working in my own private practice for quite a few years. Um, and 
even though you're doing a really good job with them and you're hands-on and people are feeling better after your treatment, there's still a percentage of clients that despite feeling better with treatment, problems come back. And so then I actually studied acupuncture. So I'm actually a qualified acupuncturist. And so I did a combination of acupuncture and physiotherapy for quite some time. Um, And then sort of over a period of time, well, the acupuncture helps to soften knots in muscles. And I know you do dry needling, so you would understand the benefits there. Um, helps to improve blood flow, fluid flow throughout the body by helping to deliver nutrients to the tissues. But at the end of the day, if you don't have adequate diet or adequate nutrition or adequate absorption in through the stomach or the intestines, so if you've got issues with malnutrition, um, malabsorption, it's going to be, despite the fact of everything else that we're trying to do, the cellular repair is going to be limited. So, and also with my own experience with um, nutritional issues, like most practitioners that go full on into functional medicine have usually got their own story. Um, You know, I had issues with candida and issues with my tummy and and that kind of made me realise that that was impacting on my health at the time. So, So that kind of helped to spark my interest in wanting to know more about that and at least formalise what I knew. So, so that's when I um, took on board the postgrad diploma in nutritional medicine um, and I did that. And, sorry, how long was that for? Um, it took me part-time four years uh, and that was also fairly full-on. We used to go, um, Dr Mel Sidney smith was our main teacher. Um, he's up in Brisbane, so we used to go to a series of two-week on blocks and then a lot of the rest of it was done online um but yeah we had it was it was quite intense as well but the learning curve was um was excellent and um you know I've certainly done a lot more training in nutritional medicine and functional medicine since then that was a good start starting point for what I'm doing now so how would you say you integrate sort of nutritional medicine with functional medicine because that's probably not a term most physios would be familiar with okay so initially when we're doing looking at nutrition you're learning a lot about this is I mean what I obviously I've been teaching nutrition for more than five years and it's, it's understanding your diet, of course, the benefits of, of the food you eat, food intolerances, issues with absorption, how that affects um, everything going on at a cellular level um, in every organ in the body, in the brain, um, from the point of view of um, you know cellular repair, muscle and bone repair, just understanding how the lifestyle of your client can impact their ability to recover, whether it be from an injury or, or whether it's somebody that's just coming in with, um, you know, pain, not necessarily from an injury. So I'll give you an example. Um, I had a lady she was uh, who presented to me a number of years ago. She was about 140 kilos, so somewhat overweight. And I will say that um, obesity nowadays in the population in Australia is more than 
So this is not something that's going away. Um, now, this lady presented with massive headaches that she would wake with on a daily basis for months and months and months and months. Pop her on the table. She's, I mean, I could hardly get my hands onto her. So you know those patients that you touch and they're just so super sensitive that you really struggle to actually put your hands on and, and do massage or do palpable palpation of the cervical spine. Um, so first thing I did with her was actually just put her on an elimination diet. So we took away those foods out of her diet that possibly could be causing whole body inflammation, including wheat, dairy, and, you know, it's, it's nuts, eggs, soy. There's a, there's a few inflammatory foods. And just for a moment, as a musk physio, what made you go sort of down that nutritional pathway as perhaps a more mechanical or biomechanical pathway in those initial stages? You mean oh, with her? Yeah, just yeah. what sort of meant, because you, as you say, with clinical reasoning, we often through our assessment, we sort of get a feeling for, well, this person's got more of these types of signs that would be more effective to treat first as opposed to these ones. And I was just wondering what led you down that nutritional pathway as perhaps given she woke in the morning, she had a worse symptoms then. What, what made you think it was nutritional as opposed to mechanical? The level of inflammation, the obvious level of inflammation. Systemically. And the fact that no matter where I, yeah, everywhere. She's had global inflammation and yep. you could barely put your hands on. Yeah. Okay. So because of that, I'm like, okay, we need to do something to reduce inflammation. And after doing an elimination diet and reducing those just inflammation coming from her foods, she lost 14 kilo in two weeks. I could get my hands on, I could massage, I could then assess and treat her neck. And she said to me, look, that's the first time she could actually enjoy a massage or have anyone put their hands anywhere near her. Mm. So, and that was without, I couldn't do the hands on initially. When we're a physio, I might go, okay, we can't do hands on, we're just going to give this person exercise. Yes. She needed the musculoskeletal treatment. She needed me to get in and do cervical stuff for her neck but it was really it holding me back right so she's a very typical example of somebody that has global sensitivity and and patients that have got fibromyalgia per se i mean i don't like that term i don't like that diagnosis um because personally Fibromyalgia is just a generalised term for somebody who's got lots and lots of trigger point soreness, but it's not telling us why or what's the underlying driver of their pain or their inflammation. Um, but that's a typical sort of a client that, again, is going to have lots and lots of sensitivity to touch. So I would want to have a look at what might be driving that internally. All right, so I'm going to look at gut health as, you know, I'll be asking lots and lots of questions about what's going on with their gut. Do they have constipation and diarrhoea or swinging between the two? If that's the case, they're more than likely going to have a bug of some sort. Um, you know, how old are they? Are they, you know, anyone over the age of 40, their stomach acid starts to decline and they may be not absorbing key nutrients, um, which are protein, magnesium, calcium, iron, zinc and B12. Um, you know, there's lots of reasons why you may be not absorbing 
adequate nutrients and that then causes problems at a cellular level in the muscles and um, all over. Well, I can work with a GP to get basic blood work. Your basic blood work that the doctors do is only basic and that will give us some guidelines as to um, nutritional deficiencies. I can look at someone's bloods and read those bloods and get an idea of there being issues that might not be picked up by the GP because I'm looking at it from a nutritional medicine perspective, whereas they're not. Um, but also, uh, on top of that, yes, we do specific testing for the gut microbiome. I do organic acids testing, which is looking at biochemical analysis um, at a cellular level in the energy factory, in the mitochondria, um, issues in the gut, whether there's issues with liver, um, and also the brain chemicals. Um, so I can get a baseline of what may be going on metabolically and, and then prescribe specific key nutrients that will actually target and kickstart those areas that are in trouble. And again, are these determined through like visual assessment? No, that's that organic acids is a urine test and it's looking at the biochemistry, right? So this is where the chemistries come back in. So yes. you're actually doing a biochemical analysis of the metabolites that are excreted from the body, which gives us clues as to what deficits may be going on. Um, like I, I give an example, you've got a lot of the physios that are doing all the work with pain and central nervous system hypersensitivity um, and basically you know, they're not, again, saying why, what's causing it. They're just saying basically the central nervous system is hypersensitised, whereas I will look at what's going on again with the, again with the gut because the gut can drive issues within the brain. Um, but also the deficit in particular neurotransmitters, if they are flatlining in dopamine or serotonin, for instance, I mean, that's going to have an effect on their pain sensitivity and I'll look at why. So I can actually supplement specifically to improve their ability to make those. But then also we get through to um, looking at the processes of methylation, which is making your methyl donors that you need to be able to um, turn serotonin to melatonin and, in, and, and have fetched sleep, for instance, or um, whether you can make GABA, which is your main inhibitory neurotransmitter that actually shuts down pain and allows you to stay in a deep sleep at night. Yeah, this is, this is stuff I'd found very interesting too because I hadn't realised the gut produces something like 80% of your body's serotonin. It's such a critical neurotransmitter That's for right. your brain. Yes. And if you've got a problem with your gut, then you're likely to not have the serotonin for your brain. And as you say, that leads into melatonin too, doesn't it? That's right, which is an issue with being prepared. Well, melatonin prepares you to sleep. It doesn't actually put you to sleep, but denosine does. But it's still you need melatonin to prepare the body for sleep. So, so looking at what's going on with your brain chemicals is huge point of view of pain response, the fibromyalgia type hypersensitivity um, and your ability to sleep. If you don't sleep, you don't repair. Um, if you're not in a deep sleep from one till three in the morning, that's when the liver is meant to be cleaning up the body. Um, so if you're wide awake, 
your detoxification pathways are not going to work properly. Um, and it just, the merry-go-round just keeps rolling and, you know, you end up in all sorts of strife. So, so this is the stuff that I, I love doing and I, I get my teeth into it. And <laughs> the complexity, the more complex the client, the more I'm I sort of enthused and channeled and focused and it's, it's just so much fun and problem-solving. So, you know, I love to problem solve. So the more difficult it is, the, the more I'm challenged. So in a practical situation, it's, you've gone from treating a lot of sore ankles to, I guess, you're treating a lot more complex, multifactorial type presentations where you're bringing in your musk assessment, but you're also looking at it from a nutritional perspective, but then you're going that deeper layer looking at the functional medicine. So really how that nutritional aspect is being impacted on a much broader system in a person's body. How do you actually structure the business side of treating these patients? Because I'm guessing these consultations are a bit longer than the average 20 or 30 minute consultation. Absolutely. So my, and that's why when I I moved from Victoria, I had a private practice for 18 years in Victoria and I moved up here and I thought, oh, I'm just going to take it easy. I'll just go and work for somebody else. And I started working in someone else's practice and I'm was just seeing a patient every half hour and I'm like, I just can't do this because I couldn't do proper acupuncture and hands-on, even if I wasn't doing the nutritional medicine. It was just really hard to do that in a short consult. So that's why I sort of moved back into my own private practice up up here where I am in northern New South Wales. Um, But nowadays what I do is I actually see, I book one patient per hour, but they may overlay a little bit. And sometimes I have clients in my clinic for two yeah, hours. Okay. So I'm I'm doing a combination. So my combination is I'm doing the physio. I'm still a musculoskeletal physiotherapist. So I am still doing a musculoskeletal assessment. Um, but then I'm also maybe chatting to them about issues with that I can see in their diet and their lifestyle and nutrition. And then I might also say, well, okay, we've got a problem here. We maybe need to go and do this kind of testing. Um, and then we get the testing done which might take a few weeks, but in the meantime, I'm getting on with the hands-on, I'm getting on with the lifestyle and the dietary changes, and it's a whole three-dimensional package. Um, so, so I'm spending more time with people and I charge accordingly. Yeah. So really what you're saying, I, I think I hear, is that you're, you're, you're picking your patient to the depths at which you need to go. So if it's just a simple problem, you'll do, you know, <clears throat> you know, so-called standard physiotherapy. But then when this person has recurrent problems or you can see it's affecting their sleep hygiene or they've just got, you know, ongoing immune system compromise. So you might then come back and sort of say, well, do you, have you considered these other aspects that you could probably do to augment your whole body in a more holistic sense and do you want to go down that pathway as well and and you put that off I mean I say I put that question to patients and some say absolutely because nothing's worked and other people might sort of say well it's not for me at the moment no well you obviously pick your client I mean some people are going to be receptive and some may not be and it's really it's really having that skill set because I've treated so many of these complex clients now of just highlighting different things that, you know, alarm points, you know, things will actually come to my mind when I'm asking the questions that they kind of stand out. And I think at the end of the day, um, you know, you talk to people about what you think's going on and they're making the decisions whether they, you know, they want to go further or not. Some may do some testing straight away, some might not. So it, it's, it, it depends on the person and you need to be obviously flexible. So, um, 
you know, I'm not going to go in and demand you need to do this yeah, or sure. you need to do that. It, it's it's a team <laughs> between the between you and your client. Correct. Um, but it's remiss of me to not point out things that kind of stand out like beacons. <laughs> Um, and I think, oh, there's an issue here. Having ha- sort of having been in private practice for quite a while, just how long have you been to physio for, Verona? Um, I graduated in 1980, so 40 years. In that period of time, having been largely a private practitioner, what what are some of the challenges that you've seen in private practice that perhaps have evolved or changed over that time, like things that were a problem before or a challenge and what do you see as challenges now for people in private practice? Um, for me personally, I'm probably a bit of an, I'm probably a bit of an old fuddy daddy. and this isn't going to be a problem for the young ones, but I think the whole way we communicate and the whole way we market um, is all very different now to what we used to do years ago because you've got the social media and everything online. So I think things have changed a lot um, on how you attract people. It used to be the good old yellow pages and word of mouth, didn't it? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you do need to put a fair bit of time into your social media stuff, which I do, and I have someone helping me with that. It's not something that I find fun, (laughs) I will say. That's yeah, probably one yeah. of the biggest challenges for me, but I don't see that as being a challenge for somebody young who's been brought up in that era. But, um, but for me, that probably is the biggest challenge. Okay. And that, that, as you said, that wasn't, that wasn't, you know, a thing 10, 15, 20 years ago, really. It was purely you put your, your annual advert in the yellow pages and you might have a, a sign up at the local shopping centre and then after that it was word of mouth. I think word of mouth is still pretty important patient to patient, though. It's almost a validation of your services if someone recommends you. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I used to do a lot of um, – I used to write articles for the papers. I used to do a lot of that. But even that now, papers are almost a thing of the past you know, people don't pick up and read the paper or most of the paper news is defunct. It's all going online. So, yeah, that in the last few years. Yeah, we, we, we lost our paper here about six months ago. So, it's, as you said, it's not, a, it's not a viable medium to contact your patients through now. No, no. So, yeah, that, that's definitely changed a lot. Okay. Now, can you recount a moment or a period in your career when you actually thought, oh, physio, it's just not for me? No, to be honest, no. Because I've been so involved and stimulated by wanting to learn more and diversifying what I do, I've I've never really reached a point where I've gone, no, I've had enough of this. So I'm sorry, I can't say that I have. No, no, I think, I mean, that's great because I think that's the fire that burns, you know, I, I would have to say I'm the same. So I won't, you know, go down my story's pathway. But, yeah, I think that every day is an opportunity to extend yourself and to learn something new and often that comes from your clients and being receptive to that means that every day is, you know, like Mark Twain sort of said, find yourself a job you enjoy doing and you never do a day's work in your life. I couldn't agree more with that. So what about three moments? Are there three moments in your career that you could um, share with us that seem to stand out for you, like pivotal moments or, you know, like light bulb moments? Um, well, yeah, I mean, like I mentioned earlier about doing my grad dip in Manips, uh, I think that was a huge thing for me. It really accelerated my um, professional skills, so so that was a big one. Um, 
doing my, you know, my nutritional medicine training was was another sort of turning point for me. Um, I've recently done more training in um, genetics and how that sort of fits in from a functional medicine perspective. And I think that that, that is another topic that's new and evolving and changing by the minute and just be involved in something that is so new and out there. It's probably the way of the future as well as being able to work out what someone's individual needs are rather than as a whole. Um, so so that, that to me has been a big thing. And, and then the other one that was been very rewarding is just been teaching, being able to convey what I know to other physios and chiros and, and health professionals. Um, I absolutely love it. I love being there chatting to people about how, you know, we can help people, um, you know, using nutritional medicine perspectives. So, so there, there have been things that have been really Great. So that's a good time to chip in with an advertorial, isn't it, that we uh, rerun, well, other than the COVID barrier that we've experienced in the last six months, we do organise with Verona her nutritional medicine courses that run over weekends and we've had them on the East Coast and the West Coast for the last couple of years. So keep an eye out for those because they will be coming back for sure. Um, do you just do you want to just give us like a, a two-minute two essay of what the genetics is about because that's going to be something really probably quite unfamiliar to most physios listening to this podcast how we would incorporate some sort of genetic screening is our clinical practice okay so a couple of examples we have we have um quite a, look we have a lot of different genes in our body and like they say like 95 percent of all of us are equal but then there are a few relevant genetic SNPs, and that's a variation in a particular enzyme that might be one is slow, one is too fast, that might affect someone's ability to make um, something that you really need. An example would be vitamin B12, for instance. Um, We have genes that help us recycle B12. We have genes that help us transport B12. So I, for instance, found out that I have... um, positive homozygous TCN2 SNP, which means I don't transport B12 very well. So even though I've been functioning reasonably well, I would still be a bit sluggish in the morning. Um, get I'd wake in the morning tired as if I hadn't had a refreshed sleep. Um, and B12 can affect your concentration. It also affects that methylation cycle that I talked about, that we need the byproduct of that SAMI to be able to help convert serotonin to melatonin. Um, and also for detoxification of histamines, for instance. So if you've got a problem with any of the enzymes that are in that pathway or a problem with your your delivery of your B12, it can affect so many aspects. Now, I've been injecting myself with B12 now for a number of months, and my quality of sleep has improved dramatically. I can sleep for six or seven hours and wake up feeling refreshed, which I haven't done for years. Okay. And that's by just finding out that I had that genetic SNP. And how can physios access that sort of uh, testing or methodology? Yeah, there are um, biosuticals have got uh, some training. Um, it's it's very it is basic, but that that is probably a place to start. Um, I've done much more advanced training with um, practitioners that are involved in this at a much deeper level. Um, the other thing you can do is there's lots and lots of learning through Ben Lynch on um, 
you know, YouTube or online, he's probably the guru in um, the world, to be honest, um, on learning about genetic SNPs and what they do. He's also written a book which helps with at a basic level. Um, so, yeah, I would I would look at the bicycles <laughs> and I would look at Ben Lynch as probably a place to start. Maybe we can put some links in the show notes to people so they can, you know, be have, if they've got an interest in that area, they can start having a look around. Yeah, absolutely. And just just finally, Verona, looking forward, where do you see or where do you where would you like to see the profession of physiotherapy in sort of 10 years or more? One of the things that I think that would have been really great for me when I first graduated um, was having a mentor. And I don't think we do that enough. It's because I I was really thirsty for um, for more knowledge and more skills. And I used to go and ask a lot of the MNIPs and practitioners, can I come and observe? So I used to go into their clinics and actually see what they're doing and try and learn as much from them. It, it would be really good to have some kind of mentorship program where, um, you know, you can actually learn. I know we do courses and stuff, but it's not quite the same as actually being in there when they're face-to-face with clients. So I, I think that would be, I don't know if it would work, but I think that would be something that would be really helpful to, to get the young ones through that sort of initial phase of, you know, where they're going within their profession. I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, that really is a fast track to see how somebody puts all the information together. You see the clinical reasoning occurring, you know, in real time. And then you also see how they respond and interact with the patient because every patient is different as well. So, yeah, I think the mentoring on live patients means that you get to see the whole package, how it's put together and how it's delivered and also see the receptiveness of the patient when that sort of process is completed. And it's done really well. I think that's the other thing too. You can you can see how it's done well and you can see the benefits of it. Look, Verona, we've we've come out at the end of our time and I'd really like to say thank you so much for joining us on Physio Plus 10. Um, I know each person has a sort of N equal one experience within our profession and to hear about yours has been exceptionally enjoyable and very enlightening. So thank you very much. Thank you. Nothing beats a good night's sleep, right? But when we wake up worse from the experience with significant neck and or back pain, something isn't right. This was a clinical situation I found myself in. Personally, I rarely have a poor night's sleep, but clients were telling me about seemingly being punched in the neck or kicked in the kidneys, that sort of pain, when they woke up, indicating that not everybody was getting a good night's sleep. So what could be happening? I looked into the research around sleep systems, that is the pillow, mattress and base, and also sleep posture. For most of my clients, it seemed more likely to be related to the sleep posture as they slept in the same bed, but often would wake with variable amounts of pain. There was plenty of anecdotal information out there, but actually, and to my surprise, basically no research-based information linking sleep posture and possible waking spinal pain. Huh? This was confirmed when we undertook a scoping review in 2019 and found only four papers examining this relationship between sleep posture and waking spinal pain. In this research bulletin, I'll explain the challenges associated with the first part of my research and our findings published so far. It turns out that sleeping posture has been variously classified, most commonly into on your back, which is supine, on your front, being prone, and all the rest was classified as side-lying. Not surprisingly, adults spend about 70% of the night in side-lying. But was this useful? 
When you spend some time watching people sleep, you soon realise there's quite a range of sleep postures that are classified as side-lying, including the fetal position or the recovery position used in CPR. Other side-lying positions were more exotically named like the flamingo or the monkey, the leaner and the sandwich. The point being there is plenty of variety within the classification of side-lying, with some postures supportive of the spine while others impose sustained loads on the spinal structures. If we wanted to examine the impact of sleep posture on waking spinal symptoms, we were going to have to divide the broad category of sideline into more homogeneous groups based upon plausible spinal load. We did this and called them supportive sideline with the top knee on or behind the bottom knee or provocative sideline where the top knee was forward of the bottom knee. Another challenge to solve was the obvious question of how to collect the sleep data. To ensure clinical relevance, we wanted to record sleep posture in the home environment rather than in a hospital or sleep centre setting, in this way making the results more relevant, which meant a foray into the world of security cameras that used infrared light so that we could video participants without disturbing their sleep. Well, not too much. It's pretty eerie to wake up looking at two round red discs glowing you in the middle of the night. In sleep centres, the temperature is controlled so that participants don't use duvets or blankets, making sleep posture observation much easier. And they don't allow kids or pets to roam around the bedroom at night time either, which did prove to be an interesting confounding factors in our home-based research studies. Previous studies had used a single camera mounted at the foot end of the bed, which created a two-dimensional flat image, making it impossible to determine the position where the limb was under a bed covering. We found that by placing a second camera overhead, we could determine with around about 85% accuracy the top knee's position and therefore the correct sideline posture classification. In 2016, we published a paper demonstrating that our method of recording sleep posture and the classification of sleep posture was both valid and reliable in this home environment. With a pilot group of 15 participants, we confirmed that people were not able to self-report accurately their sleep position, hence the need for using video to enable greater accuracy. We also noted that those participants who spent a greater period of time in support of sideline had less mornings per month of symptoms than those that slept in provocative sideline sleep postures. While the results in the study were not significant, they did indicate that there was merit in pursuing the examination further of sleep posture and waking spinal symptoms using this protocol that we had developed. Subsequent to these studies, we have undertaken a cross-sectional examination of participants with and without neck and back pain using a battery of pain, dysfunction, quality of life and sleep questionnaires in addition to our video protocol. We then undertook a longitudinal study in which we attempted to modify those participants with spinal pain and reapplied the same battery of tests a month later to see if participants were able to change their sleep position and also what effect changing of their sleep position had in regards to their waking spinal symptoms. These results are pending manuscript publication and results will be disseminated in a future research bullet. Thank you for joining Verona and myself on this Physio Plus 10 podcast. I look forward to sharing another physiotherapist journey and research bullet in two weeks. Stay safe till then.